second scripture lesson is found in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Nehemiah, the servant of the Lord and the cupbearer of the Persian king Artaxerxes, at a time nearing the end of the captivity of the people of Judah, writes of his experience in these words. Hear this now, for this is the word of God. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sat in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad? Seeing thou art not sick, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lies waste, and the gates thereof are destroyed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Judah, and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down, and the gates thereof were destroyed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. 
and the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are destroyed with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Gisham, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build, but ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Here endeth the reading of God's word. Amen. <clears throat> I'm glad that Charles Massey said that... Um, if you were a Christian, you weren't supposed to look like you had liver trouble. I thought he was going to say throat trouble for, <laughs> for a few minutes. And I want to thank Donald Munson for his help in this fine choir. Now, because our time is skipping away, I want to remind you of what we've been doing. We've been studying some of the great Bible characters. Last week, we looked at a very reluctant prophet, actually a prefigurement of the elder brother uh, the, in the parable Jesus told of the two boys, and one had gone away and wasted his father's substance in riotous living, and finally came to himself and repented and returned home. And instead of his elder brother being glad at his repentance, he was angry and would not go in. And many an angry brother has kept many a prodigal son from coming back in the house again, because he's felt that he would not be welcomed if he were there. And Jonah was like that. Jonah was angry because he did not want the people of Nineveh to repent. This was Jonah's great mistake. Jonah thought that he could be wiser than God. And Jonah thought that he would save God from making a mistake. And he did not want the people of Nineveh to repent. He was angry even after he had preached to them and they had repented. And now today we come to another prophet, uh, really a layman, not uh, one of the prophets in the strictest sense of the word, but a man who was not even born in the city of Jerusalem. For 150 years, this man's people had been in captivity. Jerusalem had been destroyed had been raised all the way to the ground because of the disobedience of God's chosen people. It all had started in 722 and was finally completed by 586. And the people were carried away into Babylonia, uh, into captivity. And they suffered greatly. And God is always teaching us a lesson here that no matter how we think we may be favored of him, if we despise his commandments and trample them underfoot, 
then God's judgment will come. I fear that God's judgment may come upon America because we were literally founded by a pilgrim band of people who came here not really to find a new land, but a new opportunity to worship God. If you study carefully, those people who came on the Mayflower, you'll find that this is true. How they sought to be God's chosen people in coming here. And yet we as a country are guilty of all of the sins that we see having cropped up in the people of God in the Old Testament and having brought about God's judgment. We're guilty of all of these things which we will be seeing now as we look into the book of Nehemiah. We're guilty of social injustice. We're guilty of a lack of discipline. We're guilty of going to sleep on our religious faith and not adhering to what God has taught us from his word. And so Jerusalem lay in ruins and had lay in ruins for a long time. And then this unusual and remarkable person, Nehemiah, surfaces. He is a cupbearer. It was his task to taste the wine before the king of Persia would taste of it. The kings were often threatened with uh, assassination and people would attempt to poison them. And so a trusted servant was given the responsibility of being the taster of the wine before the cup was handed to the king. And so there came a time when Nehemiah had risen to this position of responsibility and power in the land of Persia, and the king by the name of Artaxerxes. Nehemiah had, had been out one day and he had heard some people with a Hebrew accent. They were speaking and he called them over to them and he understood from them that they had news that came from Jerusalem. There had been an attempt to rebuild the temple there that had taken place some years before because Cyrus had brought in certain reforms. But the attempt had not been entirely successful. The walls of the city had not been built up. And Nehemiah had asked these strangers from the city of Jerusalem about how it fared with the people of God. And they said, oh, the city is in ruins. It is one rubble heap. It is burned. The gates of the city are destroyed. And so Nehemiah then walks into the presence of the king some months later having prayed and wept and fasted about the plight of his people. And when he comes into the presence of the king to taste the wine, this king, Artaxerxes, who must have had some good in him, it's not often that kings and great folk ever notice what makes anyone else except themselves sad. And it was really almost a penalty of death to come into the presence of the king and not be full of joy to make him happy. But Artaxerxes saw something written on the face of this man, Nehemiah, his servant, that caused him to ask him the question. He said, are you well? Nehemiah was afraid. He did not wish to seem sad in the king's presence. And then this king 
with a great touch of greatness and sensitivity, said, what I see in you is nothing less than sorrow of heart. Tell me what it is that you feel in your soul. And so Nehemiah told him. He said, why should not my countenance seem sad? When the place of my father's is in ruins, is rubble and is burned. And then this king, with another gesture of goodness, says, in effect, what would you like me to do about it, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, after sending a sort of a holy telegram, a prayer to God, he said, let me go to Judah. Let me go back and build again the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And the king said, how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah gave him a time. And then Nehemiah, who had thought carefully about what he was going to say, said to the king, give me also some letters of introduction to the governors that I will come in contact with. Give me a letter to the keeper of your forest that I may go and get wood with which to rebuild the walls and the gates. And the king gave him all that he asked for. Now there is this point that should be made here. There is a great contrast between the situation in which Nehemiah found himself there in Susa in the palace of the king, surrounded by luxury and the plight of his people back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah could have stayed there. He could have reasoned it's someone else's job to go. But Nehemiah knew that God was speaking to him from what he had heard from those pilgrims who had returned from that city telling of its desolation. And so Nehemiah, Nehemiah discovered the will of God and he obeyed the will of God. I am convinced that most of us do not find God's will because we're afraid of what we might find if we do find it. We want guidance so we will read what the astrology column says in the paper. We want guidance so we will go to a seance. We want guidance so we will go to a fortune teller. But if we want real guidance, the place to go is to God and then be willing to obey whatever it is God may require of us. This is one reason we do not study the Bible. We're afraid that if we read the Bible and appropriate its truths into our minds and hearts and lives, it may require of us a stricter morality or a deeper devotion and dedication. This is why we will not listen carefully to the preaching of God's word. We're afraid that God may require some change in our lives or in our attitudes. And we want to keep God back at a distance. We really do not want the will of God. But when we want his will, he reveals it to us. There are people who think they want a little of the will of God. They want to pull the curtain back and see whether the will of God is what they want. And if it is, then they want more of it. If God is saying, go to Alaska, they put the curtain back. But if God is saying, go to Florida, they say, let's open it. 
They, they only want the will of God as long as it pleases them. That's the way it was with Jonah. That's why he was running away. He didn't want the will of God because it ran contrary to his purposes. And this is the way it is with us. This is why I didn't want to go into the ministry originally. I wanted the will of God as long as it meant singing in the choir or teaching the Sunday school class or being a deacon in the church or even attending church. But I didn't want it when it meant surrendering my life to go wherever he wanted me to go. Well, here, here this servant of God, Nehemiah, is willing to take up the will of God when it means leaving the luxury of the king's palace and traveling 1,500 miles over mountains and deserts and all the way back to a desolate and ruined city. And so Nehemiah sets out on his journey. And he makes it back to the city of Jerusalem. And when he has come there, he goes out under the cloak of darkness and he rides the circuit of the walls of the city and he surveys it and he keeps his counsel to himself. At first he does not tell other people what God has revealed to him. And then after he has surveyed the city, and I've often thought of what a portrait this would make, what a picture it would make of Nehemiah riding on a little donkey around the debris and the rubbish heaps and the rubble of that ruined city and looking at it and wondering just all that God would do with him in that hopeless-looking situation. Last night I was looking again into a remarkable book called Lee After the War. The story of how Robert Edward Lee, the tremendous person who had been the commander of the armies of the Confederacy, after his defeat, was even a noble man who had the respect. One of the most touching scenes in that book is when Lee surrenders to Grant. And when they took their parting, they had walked out on the porch of the house in which the terms of surrender had been signed. General Grant, in a rare gesture of respect, took his hat off as Lee mounted his horse traveler to ride away. The other Union soldiers who were standing nearby took their hats off in respect. Lee was to go back to a lot of animosity which was to be released upon him. And then he received word that he had been elected by the board of trustees of a little college called Washington College in Lexington, Virginia, to become its president. At the munificent salary of $1,500 a year, it had all of 40 students, it had four professors, and Lee goes into Lexington, accepting this responsibility with all the dignity and bearing and intelligence and capability that that great man had. And he set to work in rebuilding that school. It's Washington and Lee University now. Well, this man, Nehemiah, looked over that city and he prayed. And then Nehemiah, after his prayer, having confessed the sins of his people against God and having got asked God's aid and having now surveyed the situation, put his brain to work. 
He called the people together. He began to tell them about what was to be done and in the third chapter of the book of Nehemiah. You can read a tremendous story of cooperation that takes place as the people of the city began to pick up their assignments and start to build again the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But as surely as any work for God is commenced, Satan will come forward. And he will seek to oppose it in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. You read some names that you ought to always keep in mind. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshmu. These are people who did not want the walls of the city of Jerusalem resurrected from the ruins. And so they begin their opposition. First they begin by ridicule. And they say, why even if a, if a fox should come and jump upon your wall, it will tumble down. Ridicule often is cast into the teeth of those who would follow God. And then when ridicule does not work, they set about with some forms of treachery. They start rumors and lies. They start saying that this man, Nehemiah, is actually plotting against his own king. The devil is always seeking to do this thing. One day last summer, it was our great privilege to take our children and go into the tiny little home in which David Livingston was born. Nothing more than a room, one room, and a little kitchen attached to it. And here, this great man of God was born. And after God had spoken to his heart and he had trained himself for the medical profession, you remember, of course, that when he appeared before his presbytery for endorsement and attempted to preach his sermon, he so stumbled and stuttered that he ran out of the church and cried. And the commission on the minister and his work all began to vote, and they said, this man has not the gifts of a preacher or missionary. And one stubborn elder in the group said, oh, yes, he does. God is in his heart. And he held out, and David Livingston was ordained, and David Livingston went to Africa. And he opened up a tremendous work for God in Africa. And he suffered tremendously for God there. But the cruelest of all of the things that came into the path of David Livingston was not the lion that mauled him and left him almost dead. It was not being racked by fever until all of his teeth loosened and fell out. It was not being starved. It was not suffering physical pain. But he and his wife had returned home, and because of the dangers of one expedition that he had to make, and because she had contracted malarial fever, she was to remain home until this expedition was completed. And the good people of the church began to murmur that Livingston could not get along with his wife, and this was the reason that she had not returned with him to Africa. And they started their cruel rumor. 
And when news of this reached Livingston in Africa, he sent for his wife to join him there. And she came and joined him in Africa. And lived only a short while, and the same fever came up again. And Mrs. Livingston died. And a broken-hearted David Livingston buried his wife and said his prayers and knelt before God with tears streaming down his cheeks. Satan can use the cruel, lying rumors that can be spread to hurt much Christian work. And so Nehemiah was faced with this. But Nehemiah does not give up. And then they threatened him with force of arms, and Nehemiah does not give up to this either. But here you see a tremendous, there's a lot of militancy, of course, in the Old Testament, and Nehemiah has his soldiers, half of them to work and half of them to stand guard. He has them so that even when they go to bathe, their sword and their spear shall be close at hand. And Sanballat and Tobiah can find no way by which they can get through in order to attack these people. They said their prayers, and they knew that God was with them in their work, but they also intended to defend themselves too. There's a funny old story about our pilgrim fathers having been attacked by Indians again and again in one area. There's a famous story of an old Presbyterian who believed altogether in predestination and God had called him to come to this land. He was on his way to the church on Sunday to worship God and he had his big Bible under his arm and under his, under, under his other arm he had a rifle. And one of his Methodist friends said, uh, well, if you believe that God is going to take care of you and that you will not go until it is your time to go, why do you have this rifle with you? The old Presbyterian said it may be some Indian's time to go. <laughs> well, this was the way it was when Nehemiah fought. It might be some Arab's time to go or some Samaritan's time to go, but he intended to defend himself, and so the walls began to go up. And then there were social injustices that existed in this land. There were people who had taken exorbitant interest rates from their brethren. And Nehemiah brings about tremendous reforms here. There was abuse of the Sabbath day, and Nehemiah stops that. He stops it by a very simple device. He closed the gates of the city. And when the people who came to sell fish couldn't get in the gates of the city, on the Sabbath, their fish didn't sell very well on Monday. He stopped it. And then you read in the eighth chapter of the book of Nehemiah about the great thing that takes place when Ezra, who is the preacher, the scribe, when a platform is built of wood and Ezra takes the book of the law of Moses and so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and they gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading and a national revival takes place in this land. It always does. When the word of God is faithfully preached and the sense of it is given and it is applied, then great good begins to take place. And so the walls of the city of Jerusalem were built again. Now what are the messages that this book has 
by which we may apply it to ourselves today. First of all, we need to be willing to seek God's will no matter what it costs us, and we need to do it. We need to remember that as individual Christians, we were put here as a colony of heaven. People who have been born again and transformed by the grace of God for the purpose of bearing a witness and a testimony to him, Jesus said, ye are the light of the world, as our young people sang. He said, ye are the salt of the earth. You're not to blend into the secularism that's round about you. You are to be different. You are my chosen people. Here in America with its, with its emphasis upon all that is sensual. How to be a sensual woman. How to be a sensual man. We don't need to be more sensual. We need to know how to be holy. We don't need more emphasis upon sex. We don't need more emphasis upon materialism. We need emphasis upon God and his call to holiness. And when we are, then we are people who can make our influence felt. And the church, with its new morality, and the church with its moral flabbiness, and the church with its lack of authority in the preaching of God's word, has been shameful and God may bring judgment upon us for what we have done. In 1587, Sir Walter Raleigh established a colony on Roanoke Island. It took several years for a relief expedition to get back to that colony. In fact, it didn't get there until 1591. They could find no trace the colony. Many legends and stories and a drama have been produced about this lost colony. Well, the Church of Jesus Christ is not to be a lost colony. Paul reminded us again and again and again and again that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are indeed pilgrims and strangers here walking a wilderness journey, but that this world is not our home. We are building for heaven, and so there must be distinctive qualities about us. Those distinctive qualities will also manifest themselves in the things that we seek of social justice. When I think of John Wesley at 87 years of age, 87 years old, walking through the streets of Bristol in the snow until he is consumed with influenza and fever, distributing coal and relief money to the poor, and coming to his deathbed. The last letter that he ever wrote was to William Wilberforce urging Wilberforce to fight slavery with all that he had. The tremendous revival that took place when the word of God, the will of God was sought, when Wesley sought it, he started his holy club at Oxford, when the word of God was preached and people were converted, 
and when it was applied in day-by-day living in a way that brought honor to the name of God. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a builder, a builder for God, a builder of two cities, twin cities, a builder of the city of Jerusalem, and a builder of that city to which we seek to go, the kingdom of heaven. Let us stand and be dismissed with prayer. O Lord our God, we bless thee for thy gracious gifts to us. We thank thee for this, thy faithful servant, Nehemiah. We pray that thou wilt enable us so to read the Bible that we may see its lessons for our own lives and be willing to follow in thy will and not to be shocked when opposition comes our way, but to pursue with determination the course which thou hast called us to that of living a life that is holy, and that of carrying out the purposes of Jesus in this world. O God, we pray for revival in the church, and we ask that it may begin in each of us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our helper, and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.